Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Nothing, nothing. Really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. I've never done a pocket Altoid, but I do the pocket hard-boiled egg. Is it kind of a homeless move? Yes. Is it a smart and efficient move? Also, yes. I think you're damn right. Pie is American. It's American because we stole it. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And author Matt Siegel is here today. He wrote The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat, which comes out August 31st. The book explores where our taste for certain foods actually comes from, the untold history of some of our favorite foods, and debunks myths like, are there really such things as aphrodisiacs? And as huge food guys who talk and argue about food on pretty much every single episode, we knew that Matt was a must to have on. Yeah, Evan, you know, there were so many points during this interview where I was like, God, this is Evan's been waiting months to ask this question. And finally, he has somebody other than me to ask it to. So in that way, Matt was probably the perfect guest, even though this episode was a little unique for, uh, fr from our catalog. We talk about cereal. We talk about pizza, all my favorite things. We're going to get into it in a little bit. But first, we're going to do hot takes. Tim, let me go first this time. I feel like you always go first. Let me, let me ask you some questions to start off. All right. Let's do it. All right. I don't want to bamboozle you or anything, but, but we'll, we'll switch it up a little bit. Run episode 41. New era. Yeah. All right. Question number one. Why are they called porn stars? I have no idea, man. You know what I mean, though, right? Like anyone who ever who anyone who participates in an adult film is called a porn star whether they're they've been in two films their whole life that no one ever watched or they're winning all the whatever the porn star awards are called why are they all called porn stars you don't call the guy who's uh in one movie in 1980 and then never acts again in his life a movie star i think a lot of people do call that guy a movie star i mean you know when i mm, you know I, I don't know i don't know about that I don't know why they're called that. I think probably because there's no other term for that uh, line of work. Porn actress, porn actor, same exact thing as, as regular actors and actresses. No? Yeah, I, I, I have no idea, man. Like, <laughs> we don't think we have anything on this? No, we can sit, you can brainstorm. We, I, don't, I don't want this to be this big of a flaw. I think it's just because there's never been another name invented. Well, so where do you think the line is, though? So do you think that if you're the guy in the background of the sex scene and you're fixing the copier while the guy, while like the, the main action is happening in the foreground and you're kind of just like an extra, a porn extra. Are you a porn star or do you have to be like participating in the scene in an active way? No. Okay. So you have to have a speaking line. You have to have, you have to be like, I think you have to be participating. Okay. Okay. I don't know if I'm the authority to answer that question, but uh, yeah, that would that would that would be my thought. If you're looking for like a bit of ego inflation, it's probably a better route to become a porn star than a regular actor because you can call yourself a porn star, not just a you know a meager actor looking to make it in Hollywood. You get yourself in one film, you know whether it does well or not. You're a porn. You're a star, man. You're immediately a star. That's it. 
That's right. <laughs> okay. Oh, Jesus. All right. Uh, okay. Next question, Tim. Do you know what pocket Altoids are? I, I do not. Are they not regular Altoids? They're regular Altoids. All Altoids can just fit in your pocket in general. They could. I'm talking about a loose Altoid that you put in your pocket before you go out for the day, before you go out at night. You don't want a whole tin of Altoids jingling around in your pocket. Uh, maybe you, you were in like tighter pants. You don't have, you know, it's uncomfortable. So you just want one single Altoid. Just pop it in your pocket. It's right there for you. Do you think that's weird? Uh, no, I don't think it's weird. And I'll add an antidote here because I've never done a pocket Altoid, but I do the pocket hard boiled egg <laughs> where if I have to, <laughs> no, you don't. No, <laughs> if, you don't. Yes, I do all, all the time. If I have to leave in the morning, you know, hard boiled eggs are like my go-to to go breakfast when I'm at home. So I'll have like a few boiled eggs in the fridge and I'll grab one and I'll either put it in my backpack or put it in my pocket and then I'll go. You just straight up put it in your pocket, like not even in a bag or a Ziploc, but you just put it straight up in your pocket. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense than an Altoid because at least an egg has a shell. An Altoid is just going to sit there and collect lint. I completely, I, 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 I'm in full support of that as long as, you know, you, it's not going to break or crack somehow. Because uh, an Altoid, you can do pretty much any, you can live your daily life, you can do whatever you want, and the Altoid is going to be there. The horrible egg, that, that, you know, that could get a little messy depending on, you know, what you're doing. But... I love that. The pocket hard-boiled egg. Because I, I get a lot of shit for the pocket Altoid. I didn't think this was weird. I've been doing this for years. And before I would like, I don't know, I'll put, if I'm going out for the day, I know I'm not going to be back. Like, I, you know, put a, put, a, put an Altoid in my pocket. I don't want to, I want a whole tin, but I just want one. Because I, you know, just might want to, you know, want to mint some time during the day. And then one time I pulled it out of my pocket, like two o'clock. I was like walking around Boston or something. And my friend's like, what did you just do? And I'm like, had an Altoid? <laughs> and she's like, uh, just from your pocket? Like, is that from a tin? Or did you just pull it straight out of your pocket? And I'm like, it's just from my pocket. And she's like, that's so gross. Like, what, what, it, it, there's like your keys are in there. And like, there's like lint. And I'm like, how dirty do you think my pocket is? Like, it's it's not, a, it's just a mint. It's not a big deal. And then ever since I've had, I've been like self-conscious about the pocket Altoid. And I feel like no one has ever validated this for me. It's until you now, Tim, with pocket, <laughs> pocket hard-boiled eggs. Yeah, I mean, I'm on your side, Evan. I I can see the concern of other people with the pocket Altoid because I have heard the concern about the pocket hard-boiled egg, but I am not going to abandon the practice because it's convenient for an on-the-go lifestyle. Yeah, I, it's, well, while we're talking about pocket food, I, I've also been known to... Uh, one time I was having dinner at a restaurant and they do really good rolls, like... Um, you know, like small, like bread rolls, like really fresh. Yeah, I know. I know exactly where this is going. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. So and I had to meet people for trivia, a trivia night at another bar, uh, like five minutes down the road, just was going to walk there. And I knew I was going to be kind of hungry a little later because I, I don't usually want to order anything at this other bar. So I figured, you know what, let me just take these rolls to go. So I put three, they're small, but like three rolls in my pocket, show up to trivia. Midway through trivia, I you know, pull one out and start eating it. <laughs> Everyone's just staring at me like, what on earth did you just do? And mouthful of roll. I'm just like, pocket rolls, man. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets the practice of putting food in your pocket. Like people carry an entire other thing with them just to carry food. Put it in your pocket, bro. Is it kind of a homeless move? Yes. Is it a smart and efficient move? Also, yes. 
Just keep a clean pocket, put whatever you want in there. That's the moral of the story. All right. Well, since the porn star question fell completely flat, uh, it was it was a short hot takes on my end today. So we're gonna we're gonna go over to you, Tim. All right, I've got another one. Actually, both of mine are kind of tied into the episode topic today. But I I'm curious, particularly since we talked a lot about aphrodisiacs today in the interview. What is your go to date food? My go to food is anything that I can eat cleanly without making a mess. And I think that is an aphrodisiac in its own way because I think there's nothing less attractive than like for a girl to sit across from me who's eating a burrito with my hands and it's all over my face and it's just disgusting. So I think that anything you can eat cleanly with utensils that's not, you know, too filling, not going to make you feel gross afterward. I think that's a that's that's my go-to. What about you? I would have to say yeah, I would I agree, although I'm not known for my clean eating, but I would say probably like a sandwich. Something that's not completely just covered in sauce like a pasta dish. I probably wouldn't do pocket rolls on, on a uh, in that situation. That's probably efficient, yes. Also probably a turn off. You got to wait until at least the third or fourth date before you do the pocket foods, especially like if you're if you're going on a hike on a date like I know you love to do so much. You can't just bust out the pocket hard boiled egg on your hike like you're not going to get date number two there. I know it's really the same thing as the pocket Altoid and probably even more sanitary, but the pocket hard boiled, the visual of the pocket hard boiled egg is so funny to me. It's just like you on a hike reaching into your pocket, pulling out a hard boiled egg. It's just so funny. Yeah. Okay. Next one. What is one thing that you love now that you hated as a kid and vice versa? Something that I used to not used to like, but now I don't like. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing I used to do all the time. This isn't, this isn't about me not liking it anymore, but it's on topic with today's interview too. I used to mix four or five cereals every single day for breakfast in this, in the same bowl. Same bowl every single day. I did this until maybe about three years ago. I like doing three, that. What's wrong ago. with doing that? I, I I stopped doing it mainly for just like health reasons. It just I was like I could be like greatly adding to my di- healthy diet by just eating eggs instead, which I also like. But I would I mean I have this whole philosophy on cereal. Like I would do, and it was the same ones all the time. I would have bran flakes on the bottom as like a healthy kind of fiber rich base like a foundation and then i would have rice krispies to kind of fill in the gaps i picture it like you're building a building right you got the foundation you got like the mortar the rice krispies is the mortar then on top of that i had this thing called uh, product 19 which most people like cringe when you say product 19 because it sounds like it was you know made in like a factory which it was but it was delicious it's like a picture like cornflakes but with uh it's with 19 vitamins and minerals that's why they call it product 19 and it was so good it had like a slight like honey flavor great texture just oh my god so good so you got that as like your third layer and then on top top it off with like a little sugary cereal little uh little little cinnamon toast crunch little little fruity pebbles fruit loops get crazy uh do whatever you want so picture like a food pyramid the whole thing you start off with bottom with the base solid base healthy food you work way up to the sweets on the top and that was how my cereal was structured every single day and i would wake up and i would be so happy to wake up because i knew that in about 20 minutes i was going to be eating the best meal of the day all right well that yeah that was good i i agree i mean as far as what i 
didn't like as a kid that I do like now. It, a lot of it is food related. I will say that one thing I did like as a kid that I don't like now probably is video games. Like I, I don't think I could sit in front of a video game at this point in my life. I was never like a huge gamer, but I did have an N64 and before that a Genesis and before that an original Nintendo as a kid. You know, I grew up in the late 80s and 90s, so those were the things to do. And I grew up with those things and I appreciated them. However, like as you you know, you get older and and video games became more and more complex and took longer to play and became more of an ongoing affair, I pretty much lost interest. I feel exactly the same way. Like I used to be in in high school even and middle school, I was a huge video game kid. I have not bought a video game system or console since the GameCube. I still have a GameCube, I'm looking at it right now. And that's it. Like that's that's my level of competency as a gamer super smash bros mario kart mario party like all the cheesy lord of the rings games they made based on the movies like that's my that's my thing like all like the like the call of duty like that like the shooting games the first with like Fortnite, everything people play now Warzone. i can't do that i can't fuck with that it's just not it's out of my league i don't understand it. it's too complicated i just want and you don't play games with people in the same room anymore you play online with strangers and it, a lot of games don't even have the capability to play in the same room with people anymore. That was the whole fun of it, of it for me. So I think, I don't think I grew out of video games. I think they grew out of me, I guess, if, if, we're, if we're putting it that way. Yeah, I agree. It was, it was getting everybody together and playing GoldenEye 007 for hours or Mario Kart. Like after and anything beyond that, I wanted nothing to do with. Yeah, no. It's always funny because I my dad used to play mario games with me and he was really good at them i so i thought like i was like oh my dad's so good at video games this is so cool like my dad like likes video games but the, the second you give him like the most basic iphone app to play that asks you to do more than just side scroll and jump and move he, he just he's like lost he can't do it so it's like it's so funny how people of a certain generation i think have a hard time just like comprehending the most basic kind of digital advances and wrapping their head around it because I, I feel like that's true of me now the games are just so much less accessible now than they used to be and less user-friendly so i feel like one of those people of like a past generation and now doesn't get video games yep yep we feel like our parents and uh i i think i think that's a good way to wrap up this uh, hot take section yeah for sure we're gonna get into the interview with matt we'll see you guys on the other side All right, we're here with Matt Siegel, author of The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat. Matt, thanks for being here. Guys, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So we talk about food all the time. Uh, Tim and I know absolutely nothing about food, you know, even though we think we do. Uh, we talk about it on pretty much every episode. We have no fear expressing our probably ill-informed opinions. Uh, so it's good to have you here as a expert, someone who's written about the subject and Everyone loves food, but what inspired you to write this book in particular? I mean, yeah, like like everyone else, I love food and my background, I was an English professor. So, you know, my passions are story and research and, and narrative and also symbolism and, and looking way too close at things, whether or not that's accurate. And so that really just sort of intersected with my interest of food and uh, 
I didn't necessarily set out to write the book. I just sort of found myself on weekends, you know, my two interests intersected and I'd find myself in libraries just reading old books and old diaries about food and even scientific studies. And what I just came to realize is that, you know, there's there's tons of food writing. There's never been more food writing and more food media than there is today. Um, but there, a lot of these stories aren't being shared. I think a lot of people assume that history has already been covered. And in a lot of cases, there's still uh, narratives, new narratives to uncover. And in other cases, yeah, it has been covered, but it was covered a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or a hundred years ago. And crazy things happened that people haven't talked about for a long time. So when you do uh, travel, whether it's you know, anywhere abroad or just within the United States, when you go to, you know, a new place and you kind of want to get a sense of what their food culture is like, where do you go to try the local food? Like what's your go-to move for getting a local authentic experience? It's tough. Um, you know, I think obviously today with, with Airbnbs and, and, and travel writing, you have a lot of expertise you can use to guide you. Uh, personally, I, uh, I tend to sort of wing it more. Uh, I like to visit grocery stores or food stands, any, even, you know, commercial grocery stores, wherever I go. And that's not just internationally, even if I'm traveling, you know, in the States to Florida, I go to the grocery store, they have different names, they have different, you know, products and internationally that that's where, you know, if you want to see what the people eat. That's, that's where they're buying a food a lot of times. And a lot of times you can also reflect on American culture. You know, if you've ever been overseas and been to the American section in a department store, uh, it's sort of depressing, right? It's pretty much children's cereal and chewing gum. Hey, I'm a big cereal guy, Matt. So I don't, don't, don't take shots at cereal. We've talked about this a lot on the, on the show too. Tell me, I'm we, a huge, it, I'm a huge cereal guy. Um, well, we have, I, I do have a, uh, an excerpt from the book or, or a, like a fun fact where you talk about cereal. I was going to bring it up later, but because we're here now, I might as well. You say that the first breakfast cereals were deliberately bland and unexciting. They were created to be bland and unexciting. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, the first cold breakfast cereals, what we think of a breakfast cereal, pre-made, ready-to-eat cold breakfast cereals, uh, they were the product of religious health reformers in America who really just sort of thought sugar was evil and, and led to temptation and that you know the best diet was a bland and, and unexciting diet that sort of led you to a chaste life, right? And they basically thought that sugar and spices and really anything that was fun uh, led led down to temptation and adultery and excess and, and all these practices they thought were sinful. So cold cereal was created by uh, Kellogg, Dr. Harvey Kellogg, who really he, he wanted a way for people to break their fast without without starting their day with with sugar. So eating like shredded wheat, whole grain shredded wheat equals getting into heaven. Eating frosted flakes equals hell. That's like that's the basic breakdown of the philosophy. Well, ironically, that's where the company ended up, right? Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
But I'll tell you, shredded wheats, uh, I mean, shredded wheats, even that that would have been a luxury, right? So the, the very first cereals, people complained uh, that they broke their teeth and that they they lacerated their gums well isn't that like the like penance that's that's like a yeah i mean a, a, living an austere you know kind of brutal lifestyle that's that's getting you closer to god that, so that's, there you go that's pretty much where it came from it it, it wasn't uh, a very fun way to begin your day we're a pretty religious country still i mean i feel like i feel like you could still get away with that as a marketing ploy you know like eat like it's a, a, taking cereals that really have no flavor are kind of fallen out of favor and just rebrand them as bran flakes will get you closer to god look i mean kellogg i uh i don't love what he did right uh but i don't think he was all that wrong you know i mean i think they're i obviously enjoy food i love food i love cereal i i probably eat two to three bowls of cereal a day love it but yeah, I do think I think he was on to something in the very specific point that if you're going to begin your day with a bowl of just sugar and marshmallows, that the rest of your day might kind of seem downhill compared to that. It's it's hard. It's hard to kind of you know, life that, is pretty, you know, it's hard to yeah, get better than that. Life is pretty bitter. Life is tough. And, you know, if you're doing that and, and drinking coffee that that tastes like Girl Scout cookies, I mean, that's awesome. But ooh, you might be disappointed when uh, the rest of your day is not as sweet by comparison. Well, so at what point did uh, did Kellogg's descend into sin and started selling Lucky Charms? It's probably after his sanitarium closed down, I would imagine. I'll let you decide uh, when he descend, when they descended into sin. Uh, <laughs> when they started adding sugar, it was actually uh, Kellogg's brother. <laughs> the cane to his able. Yep. So, yeah, eventually Kellogg's brother split off. And when we see the name on the box, that's referring to uh, the younger brother, Kellogg, not John Harvey. Um, he was the one who started adding sugar and also the first toys in cereal boxes. And he sort of had an opposite philosophy. He wanted to spread joy because their lives as children, that's sort of how they were raised. They didn't, uh, you know, they were just were sort of raised being told everything good is evil. Everything, I'm sorry, everything fun is evil. Um, so they didn't really have, you know, in my perspective, the most, uh, the most joyful childhood and he wanted to change that. So he came up with his own cereal, uh, started basically frosting it and adding sugar and, uh, added some toys to that too. Well, speaking of, uh, spreading joy, let's talk about fast food for a second. Uh, yet another thing that people love to, uh, love to shit on me for enjoying but we talk about fast food here all the time, especially with regard to travel. Is it okay to eat fast food when you travel? What do you think? Do you eat fast food when you when you travel in your everyday life? Uh, what What are your thoughts on fast food? I'm always curious to hear what actual foodies have to say about this. I will tell you, I have not had fast food. I mean, we're we're talking about Burger King, McDonald's, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of fast food. I haven't had fast food in in probably ten years. That's a that's a me thing. That's primary primarily a excuse me, a health thing. Right. I don't personally eat, eat fast food. I think if you eat it, um, I think overseas is probably the best place to eat it. I mean, I think it would be sad 
if you're going overseas and you're eating nothing but fast food, but you know, a lot of the menus over there are, are different than they are over here. Exactly. We've all, yes. we've all seen Pulp Fiction, right? And it's not just the metrics, but they have, you know, they have really different food items there. And so in a way, that is a way to experience their culture. I could not agree more. And it's a way to experience our culture too. If you're if you're visiting America, God, yeah, and you, you know, and and your body can handle it, yeah. Eat some fast food. What do you think is American cuisine? I've always wondered this. People ask me, like, what do you think American, what is the American national food? And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you could make few, a few arguments from the book what American foods are. Foods are. So I think cereal, uh, you know, ready-to-eat cold breakfast cereal, Kellogg cereal, I think that's 100% American. Not only was it created in America, but it kind of shows both sides of the duality. So on one side... It shows that like conservative American Puritanism, you know, the, the the religious aspect. And on the other side, it shows the crazy excess that flipped that over and, you know, led to mass amounts of sugar and, and big serving sizes. Do you think burgers are American? Because that's the first thing that always comes to mind. But are, are is a cheeseburger an American product? Yeah, you know, I'm sure you can find a million people who have different opinions on that and will tell you, you know, that it's named the hamburger because of Germany and, and that ketchup is actually Chinese and who knows where the pickles come from and American cheese, I think, was developed by a Canadian. Um, you know, are burgers American? I mean, the world's a weird place, but I'm going to go, I'm going to say certain burgers are American. I'm not sure if we can if we can lay claim to all burgers. That's not something I address in the book, but all I, I think certainly some burgers are American, and I, I would think the the fast food burgers qualify as some. Of it those. would be very American though to just broadly lay claim to all burgers, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, and and that's you could make that argument, and that's sort you know another food is pie. Um, I think you're damn right. Pie is American. But we didn't invent it. It's American because we stole it. and It's pie imperialism. That's what it is. Yeah. We stole yeah. it and added, made it sweeter and, you know, made it bigger and more indulgent. And that's pretty American. Yeah, we planted that big old American flag right in that pie. Again, very, very us. Um, I'm going to get into the, some more specific uh, takeaways from the book. One specific thing I want to call out is... You talk about aphrodisiacs and exploring the myths surrounding them. Can you talk a little bit about this and maybe uh, disappoint some guys out there strategically planning to order oysters on their date tonight? Yeah, you know, I don't want to disappoint too much. I had actually planned on writing an entire chapter on aphrodisiacs and the science of aphrodisiacs. Um, but instead, I, I just thought I'd it ended up making more sense to talk about it in context of the serial chapter, because, you know, we've been, we've been sort of skirting around the issue here with serial uh, talking about sin and, and temptation, but, you know, Kellogg was really, really anti-masturbation, uh, super anti-sex in a lot of ways and, and anti-masturbation. So, 
Cyril was really created to be the opposite of an aphrodisiac. In terms of actual aphrodisiacs, the reality is almost everything has been used at some, has been said at one point to be an aphrodisiac. Um, there's also foods that uh, come into sex in other ways as certain objects or, or lubricants. I would argue that sloppy joes are not an aphrodisiac. Well, there's de- there's a whole list of foods you do not want to eat. You know, hot peppers, that's, uh, you know, that's another thing that, you know, a lot of foods can be dangerous if you're, if you're sort of mixing them in that sphere. And that, is that because it just, it could negatively affect your, like, your body just anyway? Like, it's not good to eat a lot of, like, hot stuff because it's, it's like, could upset your digestive system? Or is it actually, like, kill sexual desire? So hot peppers, a lot of people argue that they incite, you know, historically argue that they incite sexual desire, right? The the problem is, you know, food is food does a lot of different things to our body, right? So, yeah, anytime you're eating something and in, in getting in eating something that might upset your stomach, you know, that's something I might avoid. I think the bigger issue with hot peppers, uh, if you do eat them before you are with someone, uh, it's just a real good idea just to wash your hands really, really well and probably brush your teeth because, you know, you can, you can get some chemical burns in some sensitive. Yeah. I have a story of a, Tell it. someone I knew doing a hot wings challenge girl. I know doing a hot wings challenge. Oh no. There was a guy doing the hot wings challenge and then slept with his girlfriend afterwards. And she, long story short, had to go to the emergency room. So I don't think he, I don't think he washed his hands or her, her mouth. Yeah, that's a very common, common story. So something to think about. We might've just saved, I don't know, we oh, saved yeah. people's lives, but maybe an embarrassing trip to the hospital. Yeah, we're saving lives here. Let's pull out a few more things from the book. One of the ones that struck me the most was in 19, or sorry, in 1893, the Supreme Court had to rule on whether tomatoes were fruits or vegetables. It's been settled that I think tomatoes are uh, that tomatoes are fruits, but not without some contentiousness. So, what's the backstory behind that? Why did they have to rule on that? I mean, I think they decided they were vegetables. Um, Wait, is it are so they vegetables? You have to take that up with the court. I thought they were fruits. I thought that was like the whole the big thing. No, I've always oh, been taught they were fruit. Hey, we'll defer to you on this. But I have to pull up the court case. So this actually stemmed oddly enough from a tax issue. So there was a a special, basically there there was a special tax uh, that was different for fruits versus vegetables. So. Uh, Someone was basically like like many things in America. Someone was tired of paying his taxes and argued that uh, tomatoes should be exempt. And uh, it spent, I think, six years in in different courts before making its way to the Supreme Court. I just looked it up. Tomatoes are a vegetable. I've I've literally my whole life thought they were fruit. There you go. That me too. That's what I was always taught as a kid. Yeah. What? That makes more sense to me that they're a vegetable. That's wild. What more interests me too is are hot dogs a sandwich? What are your thoughts on that? You know, that's something I don't know I've thought about before. I mean, I'll call them a sandwich. I mean, I wouldn't call them a sandwich. I will agree that they might be a sandwich, but I would never say I'm having a sandwich and eat a hot dog. Then grab a hot dog. 
Well, and yeah, if you're going to say that, then you have to say that a hamburger is a sandwich also. I mean, this is the problem with language. This is, you, you know, you run into these, these things a lot, writing a book. Um, but I don't know, we could take it to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's really, it's really for these very important matters that the Supreme Court should be reserving their time, not, not for anything else, really just the hot dog and the sandwich debate and the tomato is a fruit or vegetable debate. So they should really clear their desk for this stuff. Next one I want to ask about is most countries banned ice cream during World War II due to food shortages, with Britain officially endorsing carrots on sticks as the wartime substitute for ice cream bars. But the U.S. refused to give in, officially declaring ice cream essential for the morale of soldiers. Yeah, so that that's a very long story. The, the short story of it is, in most cases, it's it's not like countries said, "Hey, you know, we're going to make ice cream illegal." It's more that you know, the one of the biggest issues with war, and I, I get into this a lot in the book. I mean, food and war go way, way, way back. Um, not just actually weaponizing foods, which maybe we'll talk about later. But, you know, your uh, your army can't march if they can't eat, right? So food has always been super, super crucial to war, both in making sure that your own army has calories. And then if you want to be cruel in trying to, to make sure your enemy doesn't have calories, either by uh, poisoning poisoning their food or burning their crops or, you know, something like that. Um, so because of that, historically, almost any time there's a war, there's rationing on food staples so you can you can feed your your soldiers. And uh, at the time in World War II, there were there were massive shortages on staples like sugar and dairy and you know, most countries, most other countries uh, set strict rations that really didn't allow for ice cream. But the United States was facing the same shortage, but they really went all out and did everything they could to not only not ban ice cream, but to ship it overseas on a massive scale and erect uh, floating ice cream barges that trolled the Pacific, delivering ice cream to troops. Um, just really- It's a happiness thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting shift. You know, we talked earlier about a shift from calories as, you know, for just sustenance versus pleasure. And that was an interesting shift where, you know, our, our military really decided, um, and our country decided that, you know what, calories are important, but so is comfort. And we want to provide as much home comfort to our troops as possible and, and show them what they're fighting for. So if this is all about happiness and morale, then do you think that if the troops were all eating breakfast cereal, that we'd all be speaking German right now? That's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know. I think breakfast cereal is... Uh, is right up there with ice cream. I guess it really depends on what type of cereal. Shredded wheat. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, uh, the 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 sexless uh, church-approved cereal of like the early 1900s, maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm no military strategist, but if I had to feed our shoulder or shoulders, uh, yeah, I would go with marshmallows probably. Yeah, same. And speaking of ice cream, the other fact here is many early American breweries 
including Anheuser-Busch and Yingling, switched from making beer to making ice cream during Prohibition. That is something that I was fascinated to find out. So Yingling and Anheuser-Busch were making ice cream. Yeah, I think I think Pabst Blue, Rib, Blue Ribbon turned to cheese, maybe. In Wisconsin, I, I would think so. <laughs> ice cream hasn't had it easy. I mean, it, if you go way, way back, you know, I mean, ice, ice before refrigeration and freezers, ice was pretty hard to come by, right? You literally had to bring it down from mountains or, you know, chop it, uh, chop it off from frozen rivers or, or just wait for it to snow, which people used to do. They would wait for it to snow and either make ice cream on the spot or try and store the snow or the ice in a, in a cellar somewhere. You know, prohibition helped make ice cream a lot more ubiquitous, right? So you have all these American breweries that were used to dealing with refrigeration and, you know, a lot of the same manufacturing processes and and they had sort of the infrastructure that they were using for alcohol. Suddenly they couldn't make alcohol anymore. Surely some of them turned to bootlegging, but it was, uh, it was sort of a, an easy pivot for a lot of manufacturers to turn to uh, making ice cream. A funny scene just popped into my head of if every brewery, uh, distillery, bar stopped serving alcohol, but instead served only ice cream. So you go out on a Saturday night and you and your friends just get like five, six ice cream cones. And everyone else in the bar is just eating ice cream, no alcohol whatsoever. And that's what everyone's standing around doing, just consuming ice cream, getting like fatter and fatter and fatter. It sounds like a good time. It sounds it sounds like utopia, honestly. And you know, if you if you look at like the ice cream parlors in the 1950s, I mean, really, you know, the same thing, the soda shops. I mean, how do you think all those froyo places are staying in business? That's basically their business model is just get people on dates and on social outings to come in and buy their product. Moving on to to because we're in the summer, the dog days, this one I feel like is is pretty relevant. You'll catch more flies with beer or semen than honey or vinegar. And in fact, a scientist has called semen the crack cocaine of the fly world. I would love to elaborate on that a little bit. So I'll tell you, this is not something I I set out to write a book about, uh, but I do have a chapter on honey. And, you know, I figured, look, I can't write a chapter on honey and the history of honey without at least touching on the adage, do you really catch more flies with honey than than vinegar, literally? And I talked to uh, fly experts and had a bunch of conversations and, and interviews. And I read uh, tons of research papers and uh, diaries from like people in the 1600s and 1800s who did their own experiments around the house and you know counted the number of flies they caught. And the reality is it depends. So the answer is it depends on a host of factors Everything from, you know, whether how hungry the fly is, whether they've eaten recently, their sex, their, you know, whether or not they've had sex lately, their thirst level, their stress level, the time of day, the time of year. Um, So whether it's honey or vinegar depends. But I did find uh, several separate studies that suggest flies 
like beer or human semen more than either of those. I would love to see what the focus group room looked like uh, in the studies that determined that flies are more attracted to semen. Like, I don't think I'd want to be in the room necessarily, but... So that one, interesting, you know, this, the semen thing came into play from forensic scientists. So those studies were examining, they started out examining, can flies uh, contaminate the DNA of crime scenes if they're, uh, if they're attracted to, we'll just say different fluids at crime scenes. Okay, that makes more sense. I was thinking like, whoever the first person was to discover this, that then set off the, you know, the study was just some like lonely guy living in his mom's basement and was like, you know what? There's a lot of flies in here. Like, I wonder what the correlation is. I, I I hope no one tries to prove me wrong or right. (laughs) You know, yeah. Send you an extensive email. Like Matt, Hey, I, I I conducted some tests and uh, not that many flies. I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't want to know. Cool. All right. Well, I think that with that, we can get into our listener question. Um, At the end of each show, we, ask our guest a question submitted by a listener. Uh, we pick the most appropriate one and then get your thoughts on it. So this one, <laughs> this is kind of funny. The question is, I hate chocolate. I've been made fun of about this for my whole life. Is something wrong with me? <laughs> is there something, I guess I'll, I'll add, is there something about humans biologically that dictates that we all like chocolate? There are certain, seems to be certain foods that everybody likes. And if you don't like it, you're like an outcast. Like bacon is one of those foods as well. I love this question. We should have started with this question. I love this question. So first I'll start with your question. Yeah. You know, if you think about if you think about most of the foods that people really like, I realize that's that's a broad, right, uh, broad topic. But if you think about things like bacon and chocolate and ice cream and beer and a lot of these so-called comfort foods and indulgences, biologically, yeah, there probably is a reason uh, we like them because they're super dense in energy and calories, right? We, you know, for most of human history, it was, it was really hard to find food, right? So we're programmed biologically to seek out the foods with the most calories and you know the, the richest foods that, that give us the most energy to survive in case we don't find food again soon. Um, so that's one aspect where we could look into this. I think the other aspect is, yeah, you know, there's a lot going on with taste preferences, right? Um, So I talk in the book about how a lot of our different taste preferences, like we love to boast and brag about, you know, we have sophisticated palates because we, you know, we love European chocolate or we love truffles or, or, you know, black coffee or, or different beers. But a lot of our individual quote unquote taste preferences go back to our ancestors and, and to, uh, things we inherited genetically to certain taste receptors, right? So foods do taste differently to different people depending on their taste receptors. And I guess the final thing is, you know, something I write about in the book is that there's a lot of evidence that some of our individual food preferences go back to not only our, our mother's breast milk or infant formula, but our mother's amniotic fluid. Right. So we actually can pick up flavors early on 
that are transferred from her diet. So, you know, if your mom, let's just say, eats a ton of chocolate, well, you it's possible theoretically you might pick up flavors from that uh, as an infant, right, in the womb and, and after you're born. Um, so what's going on with this person's dislike of chocolate? You know, it could be a mixture of things. Maybe they don't just like chocolate. But, yeah, I mean, you could attack the problem from sort of a physical level from a sociological level. You know, I kind of want to dive into something you just said a little bit deeper. So in regards to, you know, the the history and the science of of what you're raised on, what your mother fed you when you're a child, and probably some of the things maybe you eat when you're very young, I would be fascinated to learn, and maybe we could Google this later, about whether there is a, a correlation between being breastfed or being bottle fed and whether that, you know, makes you open to more a broad range of foods when you're a child, because I was, you know, I was adopted and not breastfed. And I had a very, very small amount of foods that I liked when I was a kid. It's expanded a lot now and, and travel has played into that. But like when I was a kid, if it wasn't chicken fingers or spaghetti, I didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, you you don't have to Google it. I'll tell you right now, there's there's plenty of studies that suggest that children who are breastfed are more adventurous eaters. And that comes directly, you know, theoretically, because they're just exposed to way more flavors in their mother's diet that are just, you know, absorbed from a mother's diet. Um, and there's also evidence that a lot of those food preferences can last into adulthood. So don't bother Googling it. There's your answer. All right. Well, that's why we had you on the show today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But before we let you go, I have one last question. Real quick, should be a pretty simple answer. Pizza. Why is it the best food on the planet? Go. God, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, I think I think the go-to answer, you know, I, I talked about uh, calorie density. So I, I think uh, I just mm. might, I might go with that. Also, you know, it's okay. it's portable. That's important. If you think about like biologically, very versatile yep. program to like. Uh, yeah, back in the day, you know, we couldn't just uh, we couldn't just sit around leisurely eating a eating a meal. You know, we would get attacked, right? So we would become a meal ourselves. So I think we are programmed to like foods that are portable. And uh, I get into that and you can fold up a piece of pizza and, uh, you know, take it with you down the street, which you should do. Um, so, yeah, I think it all goes back to our ancient ancestors. Sure. Perfect. That's exactly the answer I wanted to hear. I'd shake your hand if this weren't virtual. <laughs> Evan's been waiting for 41 episodes to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's always a pleasure to talk about food. Matt, thanks so much for coming on. The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat comes out August 31st. Matt, uh, where can people find you? Where can people uh, pre-order the book and learn more about it? Yeah, the book, uh, it's available for pre-order now and will be available at uh, you know virtually every bookstore, you know whatever your local indie bookstore is or, or one of the big ones. And uh, who knows where you'll find me. That's, a good, that's the best answer we've had. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Probably in a pizza shop. Love to end on that note. Right. So thanks again, Matt. And check out the book. Make sure you pre-order it. See you later, Matt. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, 
All right, well, we're here in the takeaway section after a nice chat uh, with Matt. I think, as we've talked about so many times, one of the first takeaways from today's episode in general is that food is a unique individual experience. And if you want to eat fast food and consider that your experience, go for it. I mean, we've talked about this countless times, and I don't want to belabor the point, but now we have official input from a food expert, author, eat fast food abroad. Just do it. Just do it. He says it's a cultural experience, and I completely agree. Well, the one thing he did, the one, the way he put it was basically the way I've always tried to put it in, you know, not so nicely of terms is that if you're going to eat fast food, you should do it abroad because, you know, you might be in an airport or you might be somewhere where they have different menu items. And that's when fast food is like actually an experience. It's not just you being too lazy to cook something at your house. Yeah. I mean, and we, I think we talked about it in uh, with regard to Hawaii and having a spam McDouble. Uh, you can get cultural experiences in other uh, other states, other countries. They might be manufactured cultural experiences, but they're they're still cultural experiences nonetheless, and no one is going to judge you for it. Previously, it was just us that wasn't going to be judging you, but who cares about us? Even a, even a real food writer isn't going to care. So I think that that's the biggest uh, green light. We've all gotten the green light now. Go eat some Wendy's in uh, in Indonesia. Let's go and go and do it. Uh, next takeaway is. Pretty remarkable, honestly. We just we just we identified and discovered America's national cuisine. After years of debate, we've done it. Not burgers, not hot dogs. It's the simplest food of all. It's cereal. Uh, cereal is the official American food. Cereal is America's national food. Cue the music. The best part about. Cereal being our national food is that you could do it first thing in the morning. You don't even have to wait until dinner. The most interesting part of this whole business to me is how innately American cereal really is when you think about it. Because cereal was created in a very puritanical way. It was meant to, to be a very godly food that would deter people from uh, vices and to encourage uh, abstinence and I mean, compare that to, you know, the founding of this country to, you know, when people first settled here and, and the pilgrims and Puritans, very religious people, very almost repressed people. And then as the country evolved, so as cereal evolved, the country descended into what many might call sin. You know, we got we got frosted flakes. We got Lucky Charms. We got Fruity Pebbles, Fruit Loops. We got it all. We're all going to hell, you know. And that's great. That's fine by me because I'd rather live in this world, in a world with lucky charms and vice, than a world without either of those things. That's right. Cereal has been corrupted and it was for the benefit of all because now we actually have some variety in our breakfast. We don't just have to eat tooth breaking grains. You know, we can actually have a little bit of flavor. And it's funny, like we actually got a little bit into the Dr. Kellogg situation. Anybody that wants to actually know more about that, because it is really fascinating what he did. He had a whole sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. Go read the book, The Road to Wellville by T.C. Boyle, and then also read Matt's book, and you will have a full picture of the evolution of America's national food. Like Tim said, go check out Matt's book, The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat, available on August 31st, but you can pre-order now. Thanks for tuning in. We have a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks so stay tuned we got some cool news coming up that we're going to share with you guys but for now send us an email at noblackoutdatespod at gmail.com let us know what you think about why pizza is the best food on the planet we'll see you guys next week